Thank you very much. Good to be here again. I'm always here. But uh, <laughs> Simon thought it might be helpful if I just said a little bit about uh, my background, perhaps for the benefit of those who are relatively new to uh, the church here. So in 1997, a group of 15 of us moved from Brighton to Bristol to plant a church. And um, I was leading that team who uh, planted City Church at that time. We met in the function room of a pub on Gloucester Road, and it's been uphill all the way from there on. And uh, in, t- <laughs> in 2004, I uh, stepped away from that uh, particular leadership role and uh, made room for others whose gifting was more uh, appropriate for what the church needed at that time. But uh, I'm still around, you haven't got rid of me yet, and uh, it's a delight to be able to open God's Word together with you. So, uh, my wife Judy's over there, by the way. I know many of you know her, but uh, for those of you who don't, Judy and I, we live in um, Westbury on Trim, which um, often produces a reaction whenever we say that for some reason. Yeah, thank you. Okay, if you've got a Bible with you, would you turn please to the Song of Songs, chapter 5. Song of Songs, chapter 5. It's in the Old Testament. And uh, if you kind of open it in the middle, you'll probably get to Psalms, and then you keep going. I don't know how you do it if you're doing that. But uh, anyway, it's in the Old Testament. In the Song of Songs, it might be called Song of Solomon in your version. If you've got a really old version of the Bible, it might be called the Canticle of Canticles, apparently, in some of the old versions. But there it is. Song of Songs, chapter 5, and let's read from verse 2. I slept... But my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my dove, my flawless one. My head is drenched with dew, my hair with the dampness of the night. I've taken off my robe. Must I put it on again? I've washed my feet. Must I soil them again? My beloved thrust his hand through the latch opening. My heart began to pound for him. I arose to open for my beloved. My hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with flowing myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. I looked for him, but did not find him. I called him, but he did not answer. The watchmen found me as they made their rounds in the city. They beat me, they bruised me, they took away my cloak, those watchmen of the walls. Daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved... What will you tell him? Tell him I'm faint with love. Strange passage, eh? It's a strange passage in a strange book in the Bible. So let's ask God to help us as we look at it together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for breathing out your living word. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come now through and in your word. Open our hearts and our minds to your truth. Lead us to love the Lord Jesus Christ more deeply, to follow him with greater faith and obedience. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So what are you like when you wake up in the morning? Are you one of these people who just leaps out of bed? Or are you someone who has to turn the pillow over to the cold side and have another 40 winks before you can face the day? This passage describes someone waking up, or actually someone being woken up, And if you're familiar with the Song of Songs, even if you're not, you might be able to see that in this passage, there's an interaction between a man and a woman. 
And today's passage describes the lover, who's portrayed as male, waking up the beloved, who's portrayed as female. And as I said, it's therefore one of the stranger passages in the Bible. Christian and Jewish believers over the centuries have wondered quite what to make of the Song of Songs. It's got 200 enigmatic verses. It's a collection of verses celebrating love between man and woman. It's got multiple descriptions of smell and taste and touch, detailed descriptions of the human body, both male and female. It contains 25 species of plants, some with aphrodisiac qualities, and 10 types of animals. So if you like your flora and fauna, the Song of Songs is the one to be looking at. There are no references in the Song of Songs to God or to the religion of Israel. There's no reference to the temple or the law or the sacrifices or the priesthood or anything. Strange book. So why is it in the Bible? Good question. Why is it in the Bible? How are we to make sense of what appears to be an erotic love poem right there in the middle of the Old Testament? How are we to make sense of it? I'm aware of at least six main ways that the Song of Songs has been understood over the centuries. These are not necessarily mutually exclusive. One main view sees the song as a romantic love poem celebrating human love. Another view says, no, the Song of Songs is really a parable about God's love for his people, or in New Testament terms, between Christ's love for his church. Which of those views is correct? They seem quite different. If you've got a Bible as well, if you can turn to Ephesians chapter 5, because in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says something quite profound that might shed some light on our understanding of this unusual book. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul is talking about the Spirit-filled life, what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And he talks about that in terms of the social and human relationships that characterized first century Roman society. And here he's particularly talking about the relationship between wife and husband. And in the passage where he's talking about husband and wife, he makes this startling statement while quoting from the creation story in the book of Genesis. In Ephesians 5.31, Paul writes this, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ and the church. So Paul's talking about marriage, husbands, wives, how they relate together as Christian believers. And then in the middle of that, he says, actually, I'm talking about Christ and his church. This is a profound mystery. So in a passage about marriage, Paul says, I'm talking about Christ's relationship with the church. So marriage, therefore, is an example of two things being true at once. It is about the human relationship and it is about the divine romance that Christ has with his people. They're both true at the same time. There are further reasons from our reading of the New Testament why we can probably understand the Song of Songs as a metaphor for God's love for his people and Christ's love for his church. Let's think about the following examples on this table here. So in the New Testament, the Song of Songs is never quoted. It's one of the few Old Testament books that's not quoted. And yet there are references, there are allusions to the Song of Songs, particularly in the Gospel of John. Here's a few examples. There are many references in the Song of Songs to the bride and the bridegroom. And in the New Testament, Jesus begins his earthly ministry by being introduced by John the Baptist as the bridegroom. He says, I'm, he is the bridegroom. And he says, he must increase, we must decrease. At his first uh, public uh, 
miracle that's recorded in John's Gospel. It's at the wedding of Cana of Galilee, and Jesus turns water into wine. That was traditionally the responsibility of the bridegroom. So John, the Gospel writer, seems to be getting us to think, this is the bridegroom, this is the bridegroom. In the Song of Songs, the beloved, that's the woman, her perfume is made of nard, which is <laughs> rhymes with lard, but there we are. <laughs> that's where the similarity ends. <laughs> Sorry, I had to do it. Uh, nard is taken from uh, a plant that grows apparently in the Himalayas, and it was very, very valuable as an uh, essential oil and a perfume in the first century. And uh, the beloved in the Song of Songs anoints her beloved with nard, with this expensive perfume. And in the Gospel of John, Mary of Bethany anoints the feet of Jesus with expensive nard. And the fragrance of it fills the house. In the resurrection scene, Christ is in a garden chamber with a large quantity, of, he's buried in a large quantity of myrrh and aloes. And that perhaps echoes something from the Song of Songs. In the Song of Songs, the woman searches for the bridegroom, but can't find him. She eventually finds him in his garden, where he has opened the doors of the spice chamber. And in the Gospel of John, Mary is struggling to find Jesus, and on the third day finds him in the garden, where the garden chamber is opened. In the Song of Songs, the bride is half awake. We've seen that in the passage we've just read. She's half awake, and the groom knocks. And that imagery of being awake and being ready for the bridegroom is part of Jesus' teaching about his return. He uses that parable of the uh, the wise and foolish virgins talks about being awake, stay alert, be ready, because when the bridegroom knocks, you don't want to be uh, found uh, without oil in your lamps. And also in Revelation chapter 3, there's that passage where Jesus is portrayed as standing at the door of a local church, knocking. And it says to those who open the door to him, he'll come in and have fellowship with them. That's not an evangelistic verse, by the way, that's for Christians. That's an invitation or an exhortation for the church to let Christ come in and fellowship with us. Uh, Also, this one's a little more technical. Right, in the Song of Songs, there are two or three descriptions of the beloved, the woman, and the lover, the man, which are head-to-toe descriptions. They talk about, um, you should try these, try these at home, in the bedroom, if you're married. Your Your hair is like flocks descending from Mount Gilead. Your teeth are all in place. That's a good thing. Not one of them is missing. Phew, that's in there. And there's this description of the beloved. Hair, face, eyes, lips, neck, shoulders, breasts, waist, feet. The whole thing is a head-to-toe description. There's another one about the groom as well. In fact, it's in the chapter that we're currently looking at in chapter 5. After the passage we read, there's a head-to-toe description of the groom. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. Head is a purest gold. Hair is wavy, black as a raven, etc. Eyes are like doves. Cheeks are like beds of spice. Arms like rods of gold. Body like polished ivory. Legs as pillars of marble. This is a head-to-toe description. And then in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, we have this description of the glorified Christ. And it uses exactly the same poetic form as the one that's used in the Song of Songs. In fact, linguists, many believe that this particular form, which is common to Hebrew and Arabic and Persian poetry, uh, many actually believe it originates in the Song of Songs. This is probably an early example of this particular type of poetic form, a a sort of um, 
a, a head-to-toe description of someone in their glory and beauty. And John, in the book of Revelation, uses the same image to describe the glorified Christ. His head was like wool, his face like the sun, his eyes blazing fire. You know the passage? Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword, his, a sash around his chest, his feet like burnished bronze, glowing in fire. It's the same literary form, and it's originated in the Song of Songs. There are wedding themes, of course, in the Song of Songs. Book of Revelation culminates in a wedding feast, and the book of <coughs> the Song of Songs ends with the bride calling for the bridegroom to come quickly. In fact, she asked him to come quickly like a stag, leaping over the hills. And at the end of the Revelation, there's a summoning of Christ to hurry back to be with his church. So the similar language, there are allusions to the Song of Songs. Alistair Roberts, who's a theologian, says this. This is an image that I think John wants us to see in the background of all that's taking place. It's a sort of accompanying melody as he's telling the story of his gospel. He wants us to hear the melodies of the Song of Songs as whispers in the background so that we recognize that this figure, who is the performer of great miracles and signs, the one who rises from the dead, is also the beloved bridegroom of his people, the one that the people have longed for. He's the true Messiah, the one who will be like the kingly husband of the nation. And we see that continuing into the book of Revelation. Uh, name that tune, by the way. Well, Ode for Joy, very good. Ode for Joy, you'll be singing it now, won't you all? Uh, that background melody. So, with that in mind, let's think then about the passage itself that we've looked at in a little more detail. Song of Songs, chapter 5, verse 2. We can see it as both a romantic love poem and at the same time a metaphor for Christ's relationship with his church. And this passage falls naturally into a few very short sections. As we think about them, let's think about the fact that Jesus is calling his church today. He's speaking to us in amazing tenderness and love. Let's think first of all in verse 2 about the fact <coughs> that the lover calls. I slept, but my heart was awake. Listen, my beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my darling, my love, my flawless one. <coughs> Excuse me. So the beloved, the lover, the lover is knocking and calling for his beloved. And he's wanting to gain entry to her bedchamber. In scenes no doubt being acted out across suburban bedrooms, across the city, on many evenings, the woman finds herself rather tired at this point. And she's a little reluctant to respond to his love. Undeterred, the lover tries to open the door. And this woman is in a semi-conscious state. She's in this sort of dreamlike state. She hears a familiar voice, but she's not quite <coughs> sure who it is or whether she's ready to respond. It's a little bit inconvenient for her. Being asleep and being awake in the New Testament are metaphors for spiritual health and spiritual sickness. In the book of um, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says this, those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He says, you belong to the light, so wake up and be sober-minded. So he's calling believers to be sober. And he's saying that the opposite to being sober is being asleep. Sleeping belongs to those who are of the night. Paul says, you're not of the night, you're of the day. Wake up, you belong to the light, you belong to the day. 
be sober-minded. The alternative to drunkenness in the New Testament is actually not sobriety, it's being filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be drunk on wine, Paul says, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul exhorts believers to be awake and sober. He does it in Romans chapter 13. He calls believers to be sober and awake. There's a whole church in Revelation 3 called to be awake. The beloved responds. Her initial response is not too promising. She's struggling with the inconvenience (coughs) of having to get out of bed and open the door. She's washed. She's in bed. She's clothed accordingly. Undeterred, the lover tries the door. And this act reveals his desire more fully to his beloved. She responds now. She opens the door to him. She rises from sleep. And Jesus says to a church in Revelation, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. So the prospect is of deeper fellowship with Christ. That's what he's offering. That's God's will for his church when she gathers deep fellowship with Christ, like a meal with close friends. She moves from this series of being awake, responding, half awake. (coughs) She then responds with disappointment. I arose to meet my beloved, verse 5, and verse 6, I opened for my beloved, but my beloved had left. He was gone. My heart sank at his departure. She's disappointed. Where's he gone? What's happened? Was I just dreaming that? Was I imagining it? He's no longer there. Why is he gone? What's wrong? Her heart sinks at his departure. She's disappointed. And there's very little that can drain the energy of Christian believers like disappointment. Disappointment is when you hoped for one thing and something else happens. You were thinking it was going to work out in a particular way, but actually it didn't work out the way you expected. Disappointment doesn't necessarily pull us away from the faith, but it can lead to us becoming ineffective. It can create lethargy within us. It can make us even cynical, negative, if it's not resolved. The way through disappointment is not to shrug your shoulders and ignore it. It's, as this passage reveals, through the eternal pursuit of Christ, who even uses disappointment for our good to manifest his love more powerfully and to deepen our faith and trust in him. After disappointment, sadly, comes attack and hardship. And you know, I wish this verse wasn't in the passage. Verse seven, she's looking through the city streets for her beloved and she's attacked. I wish that wasn't there. We may have preferred if it wasn't included. Suddenly we're introduced to the beloved being beaten and robbed. It's an unpleasant and an uncomfortable image. It seems that evil has entered paradise. The passage shows us that the church's ever-deepening experience of growing and responding to the love of Christ takes place not in Disney World, but in the real world, where bad things sometimes happen. That's where our faith is worked out. The world as it actually is, the world of corrupt officials, the watchmen of the walls, physical violence, abuse, that's the world where we live. That's the world where our faith is worked out. That's the faith, that's the world where we actually have to pursue Christ and to know him. And in the process of responding to the wake-up call of Christ in our lives, we sometimes will face challenges, opposition, hardship, and attack as a result of the fact that we live in a fallen world. Jesus said it like this, in this world, you'll have trouble. 
Isn't that true? In this world, you'll have trouble. I don't mean to say this lightly, but Christians who are seeking to follow Christ and to grow in their love for him sometimes suffer really unpleasant things. I hope that's not true for you, but sometimes it happens. There's hardship, there's attack. And if we're going to find a way through that, I've learned from people who've suffered a lot as Christians, as I've watched them and learned from them, I've noticed that they hold on to two parallel truths. They hold on, firstly, to the reality of evil in the world. They recognize that. This is not some fairy story. There's evil in the world. And secondly, they hold on to the reality of the eternal love of Christ for them. Underneath are the everlasting arms. They know that Christ's love is very great and very powerful. And if we can somehow hold on to those two realities, we may find that we're able to begin the journey of recovery and healing and renewal and overcoming the challenges and the setbacks that we're certainly going to face. And that was true for the beloved in this passage. And the outcome of that was a deeper and a renewed desire for her lover. In verse 8, daughters of Jerusalem, I charge you, if you find my beloved, tell him I'm faint with love. So her love has been renewed. She wants to find the one that her soul loves. So it's an interesting passage. It's unusual. It's poetic. It uses poetic language. But it's talking about both romantic love and it's talking about Christ and his church. And as Christ awakens us, as he awakens us to his love... We go through often this process, reluctance, responding, disappointment perhaps, setback, but then renewal and deeper experience of his love. Tell him, I am faint with love. Let me just give you two practical applications to take away from this passage that we've looked at then. Number one is this. Christian sexual ethics reflect the divine romance. Christian sexual ethics reflect the divine romance. Unless you've been living under a rock for the last few years, you can't have avoided the fact that Christian views on sex and sexuality are being massively challenged in society at the moment. Not only from outside the church, but sometimes from within as well. Christian sexual ethics actually don't arise from the ground. They arise, come down from the heavens. They're not the product of a particular culture or a particular worldview or environment. They're the reflection of Christ's love for his church. They are a reflection of the great divine romance. It's not that God's trying to oppress anyone or, or to um, you know, defend the patriarchy or whatever or oppress some particular minority. Christian sexual ethics are shaped not by a specific historical epoch, but they're shaped by God's relationship with his people, which is described again and again in the scriptures in terms of this romance between husband and wife. So marriage, staying married, is an action that's deeply rooted in the heart of God, who chooses marriage as the image of his eternal affection for his people. Secondly, Christians are meant to feel the love of Christ, not merely believe in it as an objective fact. The cross of Christ objectively demonstrates the love of God, and we affirm that and we celebrate that every week when we gather. But we're also meant to experience the love of Christ as a personal and as a corporate 
felt experience. The love of God is meant to be felt and experienced. And the New Testament talks about the cross demonstrating the love of God, but the work of us experiencing the love of God is actually a work of the Holy Spirit. So let's not be binitarian in our view. It's not just about father and son, but the Holy Spirit manifests the love of God to us, makes that love known. Yes, helps us to feel it and to know it. And as Paul says to uh, the church he's writing to, that we might know this love that surpasses knowledge and be filled to all the full measure of God. We're meant to feel the love of Christ. Now, you might be tempted to think, well, that's the kind of thing I'd expect to hear in a charismatic church where it's a bit lovey-dovey and a bit touchy-feely. If that's your case, perhaps a quote from a non-charismatic writer might help you. The Banner of Truth magazine is a non-charismatic publication. The editors do not believe that the gifts and manifestations of the Spirit are operational in the church today. We do believe they are. We seek them and desire them and long for them. But this writer doesn't believe that. Despite that rather different position from the one we hold, nonetheless, the editor writes this. Ecstasy and delight are essential to the believer's soul and promote sanctification. We're not meant to live without spiritual exhilaration. And the Christian who goes along without the experience of heartwarming will find himself tempted before long to have his emotions satisfied from earthly things and not, as he ought, from the Spirit of God. The believer is in spiritual danger if he allows himself to go for any length of time without tasting the love of God and savouring the felt comforts of a Saviour's presence. When Christ ceases to fill the heart with satisfaction, the soul of man will go in silent search of other lovers. By the enjoyment of the love of Christ in the heart of a believer, we mean an experience of the love of God shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us. It is impossible to deny this is an actual experience. This text is to be understood as referring to an emotion registered in the consciousness of a true believer and resulting from the impression upon his human spirit of the love which God bears to him in Christ. Once a believer has tasted this love of God in his soul, he can never rest content until he has it again and again. The biblical enjoyment of the grace of Christ is not to be looked on as abnormal or extraordinary, but as part of his earthly inheritance. You might have been um, flying into the UK recently, uh, from the east into the west, and as you were flying in, your heart was full of apprehension. And, uh, you know, Christ knows you. He, he saw you on that plane. And uh, I've just been reminded of that verse in the Psalms that uh, if I rise on the wings of the morning, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, his hand will guide me. His right hand will hold me fast. We heard earlier about God's love for the individual. God sees you. God saw you in the last uh, week or two on that plane, traveling from east to west, full of apprehension. But Christ was there. He was with you. And when you landed, he's there. You can't flee from his spirit. Where can we go from his presence? He's with us. The best thing I've read on the Song of Songs we're going to conclude with, it's by Gregory of Nyssa. He's wearing his uh, 
He's wearing his uh, Newcastle United home kit there. <laughs> and in the fourth century, Gregory of Nyssa was leading the charge to defend Orthodox Christian views about the Trinity and about the divinity of Christ. And in his spare time, he had time to write a commentary on the Song of Songs towards the end of his life. And uh, this is what he wrote about the passage that we read this morning. We'll finish with this. She calls on him, though he cannot be reached by any verbal symbol. And she is told by the watchmen, the angels, that she is in love with the unattainable and that the object of her longing cannot be apprehended. In this way, she is in a certain sense wounded and beaten because of the frustration of what she desires. Now that she thinks that her yearning for the other cannot be fulfilled or satisfied. But the veil of her grief is removed when she learns that the true satisfaction of her desire consists in constantly going on with her quest and never ceasing in her ascent, seeing that every fulfillment of her desire continually generates further desire for the transcendent. Thus the veil of despair is torn away and the bride realizes that she will always discover more and more of the incomprehensible and unhoped for beauty of her spouse throughout all eternity. Then she is torn by an even more urgent longing. This is a profound mystery, Paul says, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Let's stand together, shall we?